Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ask the Professor, a crowd-supported, crowd-driven feature where we respond to your questions on everything from political philosophy to culture to economics to history. And today's question comes from Andrew, who asks, is the Canadian parliamentary system or the American congressional one more vulnerable to centralization of power and loss of freedom? And I think that's a very important question. And one that, among other things, reflects considerable positive light on the creators of the American system. I mean, yes, Donald Trump is now president. I know, I know. But for all that, the American system has for over 200 years done very much what it was designed to do. It's not holding up terribly well against the tides of modernity, but whose system is. So the first point I want to make is that the American and Canadian system and British system are not as different as people often think they are. You'll very frequently hear people say, well, the Americans have the separation of powers. We don't, or something along those lines. That, in fact, is not true. The American founding fathers, when they launched the revolution and when they made the constitution, were very explicitly trying to preserve a constitutional liberty that they had inherited as Englishmen. And they're very very clear about this in the run-up to the revolution. We intend to preserve our English liberties. We want to keep our ancient constitution. They thought it was slipping away in the United Kingdom. And they thought it was slipping away because the executive was becoming too powerful. And so the American Constitution was intended to be a reset, to take them back to the system that the English had enjoyed, but were foolishly allowing to escape. One in which the executive, for all its power and prerogative, could do nothing without the consent of the legislature, and the legislature was meant to be restraining the executive on behalf of the citizens, rather than abetting whatever the executive felt like doing on behalf of the red team or the blue team, or in our case also the orange team. And again, the American founding fathers were not wrong that the crown in 18th century Britain, having failed to crush parliament in the 17th century or earlier, was doing a rather alarming job of seducing it through perks, through offices, through honors, through outright bribery if it came to that. And fascinatingly, during the course of the American Revolution, the British themselves came to see that this was a problem. A resolution passed the House of Commons in 1780 at the height of the fighting saying that the power of the crown has increased, is increasing, and ought to be diminished. In essence saying, yes, you American rebels are right. And one of the reasons that the war ended when it did, it was certainly proving to be militarily and financially difficult. But a great share of the British governing class had come to the conclusion that the Americans were actually right. The Americans thought, well, if it happened once, it could happen again. We better create a system that more formally separates the executive from the legislature. You know, it's not just that the president doesn't need to win confidence votes to remain in office, and therefore the Congress can freely vote against him without causing an upheaval. Also, you know, members of the president's cabinet can't be members of Congress and so on. But the British also had learned a lesson. That's why the 19th century, particularly the first half of it, is the heyday of parliamentary self-government, where the commons is not whipped, where ministries do lose votes, where you can have a change of prime minister without needing to have an election because you don't have strict party discipline. What goes wrong, of course, in Canada and the United States is that as we move into the 20th century, the ambition of government gets larger. Instead of being content with passing a few dozen bills in a congressional session, 
Congress, like Parliament here, starts to pass more and more and increasingly delegates rulemaking power to the bureaucracy, which John Locke says it can't do, and which is very dangerous to freedom here as well as there. Nevertheless, it remains true that in the United States, the President and the Congress are frequently at loggerheads, and that gives citizens more choice. It also gives them more protection. You can often get a Congress that is looking very skeptically at what the executive branch is up to in this regulation-making and regulation-implementing business. You get opposition parties here who are forever howling about what the cabinet and the prime minister or premier are doing, but the parliamentary majority backing them very, very rarely admits to any doubts that it may happen to feel. Now, if you compare, you know, levels of taxation, quantity of regulation, threats to free speech or freedom of assembly, I mean, our liberties are not by any stretch of the imagination gone in this country, but they are eroding. I don't think you see a huge amount of difference between Canada and the United States. But I do think that in the United States, the institutional foundations are still stronger. Here, it is going to be very difficult for legislators to rediscover their courage their sense of purpose as representatives of the electorate, not of their governing prime minister or premier or their guy or gal who wants to be, and get us back to where we were in the middle of the 19th century in terms of our constitutional structure than it will be for the Americans, where the tensions are much more successfully built into the system. So I do think the American system is somewhat more robust that way, but ours too can do the job, provided we stop asking government to give us money all the time and get back to requiring legislators to ensure that government does not become presumptuous, arrogant, or voracious. The parliamentary system is a sound one. It worked for hundreds of years and it is by no means not working now. But ultimately, in both Canada and the United States, it's up to the citizens. If we want government not to be restrained, believe me, government is ready not to be restrained. Oh, I also, I didn't mention the role of the courts. I mean, one of the interesting things about the American system, it wasn't clear at the time of the Constitution that the courts would be an equal branch. It isn't really until 1803, Marbury v. Madison, where the Supreme Court strikes down a law that the court asserts a kind of power that courts in Britain hadn't had since, really, maybe the 17th century. By the 19th century in Britain, there's no such thing as an unconstitutional law. But in earlier centuries, there was. It was plainly enacted and stated that any law that violated Magna Carta was null and void, and therefore courts could strike them down. We, in our somewhat awkward, unidentified constitutional object, do have a larger role for the courts now, but no check on the courts. Again, it's not, in principle, completely unsound, but it's very poorly implemented, and it's been pulled in a direction that does tend to diminish our control over those who presume themselves to be our betters. So neither system is broken. There are problems in both systems, but yes, the American system, it seems to me, is a somewhat more robust one. I don't say we need to adopt it, but we need to see what's good about it in order to bring our own back to where it's meant to be. For more on that, you can watch my documentary, True, Strong, and Free, Fixing Canada's Constitution. If you have a question for Ask the Professor, the URL here on your screen will tell you how to submit it. And if you've enjoyed the video, if you enjoy my documentaries, but you're not already either a monthly supporter or a backer of the projects, please click on this button and make a monthly pledge so I can continue to bring this 
and other features to you. And thank you for watching.